This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try it before you buy at formkeep.com. I'm doing an intro. Surprise. Don't we usually intro. do like a, you know. Hi, Derek. No, not that intro. <laughs> Hi, Caleb. <laughs> you have to do our welcome to our live recording. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what I say. Welcome to the Bike Shed Live at RailsConf 2017. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> We're joined by Caleb Thompson, Goose. Yep. That's it? Just Goose? I mean, sure. Goose, Goose Monjo or... Okay. Yeah. Mongoose Mon Monjo. Goose Monjo. So, uh, long-time listeners will recall our first episode when we uh, talked about a project that we worked on called T1D, and uh, the four of us were the, were the team... Yeah, we're reunited at last. Together. So that project is pretty much the basis for the talk I gave at RailsConf this year, because it's the project I probably came to the realization of like, hey, active record uh, controllers don't need to map to active record models. And it's still a project like for a while I lost the source code to it because I had reformatted my computer. And then I asked Caleb if he had the source code and he sent it to me. Shh. <laughs> oh yeah i don't know if i'm supposed to say that but i still refer to it it's been four years and i still refer to it it's still i think the best project that i've i've done ever in my life so you've peaked yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> all downhill from here yeah you know, i mean downhill or right across yeah peaking plateauing yeah wouldn't that mean that all of your projects since then have been as good otherwise you've descended well, a little bit of a descent, and then, you know, I come back up. Sure. Jerk. <laughs> I just remember, Hi, nice uh, to meet you, Caleb Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember, because that, that was my first project uh, after I started at ThoughtBot that I, that I was put on. I just remember I could not get a single damn pull request through you. Through Caleb? <laughs> through Caleb. That does not I'm surprise me. I'm the keeper me. of the code. <laughs> we got there eventually, but, but that, was, that was my introduction to, oh, people actually care here. <laughs> Well, Sean, you had to follow the rules. We set rules for ourselves. Oh, I know. And you would break them every time on purpose. <laughs> I am convinced. I mean, I, I do generally speaking, especially now on Rails, because I know you're watching, and I just specifically format everything I can to annoy you as much as humanly possible. I want to believe this. <laughs> I really the do need to now come up with some commits to troll, to troll Caleb. This sounds like a fun way to spend an afternoon. Just request. Doesn't GitHub have that request review feature now? You can just request me on all of these pull requests. Right. So... <laughs> Is your style of development still informed by the experiments we did on that project? Most definitely. So we did the Sandy Metz's rules thing for people who aren't familiar. So we did like methods can't be longer than five lines. Classes can't be longer than 100. One instance variable per controller, right? Yep. Per controller action. Yes, um, per action. And then what were the other ones? I don't remember. Oh, methods have, can take no more than four, three or four parameters and you can't just pass a hash. I had forgotten about that one. Um, and we applied them to tests as well, which I think was the one that just kind of yeah. I, there was some benefits to it, and I think that led to some of the experiments people started doing with page objects, but I personally found that to be more of a hindrance than a help because I like my tests to kind of – a good test tells a story, and a story isn't always something that you can say in five lines. We tried to apply the same thing we did in methods, which was to pull out helper functions sure. for the tests, and I thought that that was actually not great in the right, tests. Right, because, yeah, it hurts the storytelling. It made it a lot harder to see what's happening, and tests should be complicated – it should show you exactly how bad everything you've written is. Yeah. 
Uh, but I would say all the other ones I'm, I guess uh, the other one I don't follow particularly in controllers is five lines. Like I'll go to seven or eight lines in a controller without extracting a method because like a conditional is five lines and then the finder is a sixth line and that's six lines and I'm totally okay with that. Like yeah, an if I'm, else conditional. Yeah, I, I'm usually okay with that as well. Like having five to eight lines is, is roughly okay. I just, right. once I hit more than the five line mark, I just make sure to ask the question like, is this extra line worth it? Is there something that I'm missing? Is there some object or right. some function? And if the answer is no, then it's like, okay, move on. Don't right. worry about it. Or I will actually pull it out. I will do the thing where I pull it out into something that I think is reasonable and then look at it and be like, this is worse. Put it back. Yeah. Or maybe sometimes it's better. But I think Justin had something interesting, Justin Searles, to say in the opening keynote today. He talked a little bit about taste and how taste is almost best defined by what is untasteful. So it doesn't matter if it's five or eight or ten lines, as long as it's not a hundred line methods. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why'd you point at me? <laughs> was that an active record? Was that an active record uh, clip? <laughs> no, it's fine. We we extract them into modules. Rails we is just very tasteless code. Fourteen times, then we call super. It's way better that way. <laughs> I do think you know we during those experiments made them golden rules, which I think was fine for the experiment, but of course in practice, like outside of that guidelines i think the number one thing i wish more projects did was the one instance variable per control yeah action. that one i really enjoyed a lot because that did force us to like extract more objects or force us to do the thing where like we give the collection of objects a name rather than just like an array of photos it becomes an album right or, you know an array of messages became an inbox i think we had what was it dashboard was that what was the the home page yep yeah i mean that one's pretty easy too. like Canonically speaking, it's the easiest one to start with. Sure, right, and, right. and every app's going to have a dashboard. But like, I remember, I remember it was just, it was an object that we wouldn't have extracted otherwise, and it did end up attracting some behavior that like felt fit nicely there once we once we had that object already there. But it's definitely something where we would we would have just had a bunch of instance variables in the controller otherwise, because that was rendering you know seven or eight collections of models. I think the dashboard. I'm going to have to disagree. I think the dashboard specifically I didn't like because all it was was uh, hiding the fact that we did have all of these collaborators. So, yeah, we only had one instance variable, but that instance variable had 14, 15 different methods on it that were all doing the same thing that we were trying to avoid by not having these instance variables, which is to only really have one collaborator in the controller. So I think the way to get around that, right, is actually to think of the dashboard more as like boxes and then the dashboard itself should have been building other smaller objects. We should have composed it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't I don't think we were seasoned enough at using that practice at the point that we were doing that to realize that. But I think that's what solves that problem is using composability and putting those things together. Right. So our our dashboard had like a list of activities that are applicable for you, like a timeline basically. And then it also had like the question of the day, which was like a poll. And then it had like applicable what were the other things? Got a question of the day, the research things you could participate in. Oh, yeah, the polls. Um, and then it had like a number of other things. And we just kept throwing methods onto this object. But on the flip side, they were a lot easier to test that way than they would have been if we had just done it through a controller, right? It was easier to test the logic of finding the right polls or the right activities. You know, one thing that I, I, I'm just realizing was influenced by this project in a really kind of obscure way, the associations API in Diesel. Because <laughs> um, you remember, I think this was the project where we we like started taking code climate really seriously, and um, in particular, we hit an issue where it has a barrier for the number of methods you can call that are not inside of a method definition, 
And we ended up hitting that really hard just due to the number of has many's on user. And so we started, you know, changing the way we did associations. And uh, Diesel basically has no equivalent to Rails has many. Everything is child belonging to parent. Yeah, we ended up flipping the, a lot of the associations. Because it was like, well, there's no reason a user has to have many posts. We can just say a post belongs to a user and find things that way right. equally well. And it's more pertinent to the post that it belongs to a user than it is that the user has many posts. Right. And then that realization, like, ha there, is a, there is a macro called has many in, in Diesel right now, which does one thing that can pretty easily go away. It's basically useless now. And I think that, and I think a lot of that's actually just informed by, like, realizing if you do have it, the parent's child, you end up having what would have already been your god object just glob on more as a, as a side effect of it. And giving users tools to avoid that is nice. I mean, has, has may has, you know, some value in Rails, depending on whether or not the parent can be deleted. That's about the only reason to have it, though. Explain. Well, because you need to have that, that, that deletion cascade, right? Okay. Well, can't your foreign key do that for you? Right. You could do it in the database. Right. Assuming you have no callbacks. Do everything in the database. You should have no callbacks. I exactly. know. This is why, this is, this is why <laughs> we do it in the database. That was also, I think we used foreign keys on that project as well. At some point, I introduced them as like a migration adding on like through the foreigner gem or whatever. Yeah, that's the first time I saw foreigner. It was a terrible pull request. It was just hundreds <laughs> of lines of adding these missing foreign keys, but it right. did a lot of good. It actually saved our butts when... <laughs> somebody uh, ran database cleaner against our production instance. <laughs> that was absolutely amazing. We won't name names, but it was amazing. The, and the reason it saved us is because delete statements failed because the foreign key references would have been would have gone invalid. Yeah, if you were cascading in the database, those delete statements wouldn't have failed. And we didn't right. We didn't cascade in the database. <laughs> We did have that giant migration script because we were moving from their MongoDB database to the Postgres database. I just remember it broke a lot, and we were like, "This is a one-off script. We don't need tests for it. It's fine. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna write it in a few days and then run it, and then it's fine." And then a, a month and a half later, while we're still fi figuring out how to finish the script and it's failing in every possible way, I forget You're where welcome. did we get the monger name? <laughs> what, wait, a monger? It was monger, right? Yeah, yeah, monger. Yeah, I tried to ex uh, tried to extract that for another project later and could not. No. We uh, <laughs> the work to start writing this import started before Sean joined the project, but while Goose was on vacation, and so I distinctly remember the meeting that me and you and Matt Jankowski, who was the advisor on the project, had. Where we were talking about like the work that we had to divide up over the next couple of weeks, and it was like well, we have this importer thing, and then we have this other thing, and we have this other thing, and you and I were both like, "I'll take that thing," and you were like, "I'll take the other thing." <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. hey, Goose gets the importer. <laughs> it, it was very fun to get back, and it's like, hey. We don't want to use Mongo anymore. We're using Postgres. Have fun. <laughs> so that's the best way to punish your teammates for going on vacation. Wait, that shouldn't be a thing we should do. <laughs> it's fine. Actually, I had a lot of fun writing that. I know. E you even didn't enjoy it. Breaking all over the place. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm the one I'm the one who had to inherit it afterwards. I did not have so much fun with it. <laughs> I'm okay with this. Yeah. It's. A, I, I guess I got my payback. That's okay. We've forgiven each other for various things. Yes. When I when I quit, uh, Goose had to take over the 3D rendering engine C++ project that I was on, which I feel I felt really bad for dumping that on somebody else. So now you're even. Yeah, now we're even. Now we're even. I don't know. The rendering know engine also even. had no it's, tests. It was not even. What I, <laughs> what I got out of this deal was much, much better. <laughs> was better? Yeah, it was better. That project was awesome. Oh, all right. Goose, how's your programming language creation going? Terribly, because you don't like me anymore, and don't build it with me. Yeah. I like you. You had your own, you had Monban. 
right, that's, that's not a programming language. What was? That's a great segue. Mochi. Mochi? Yeah. So actually, the idea behind Mochi now is to do a purely object-oriented programming language with no keywords whatsoever. So kind of small talk inspired. And I can't figure out a good way of making actual classes or doing inheritance or anything like that using that kind of syntax yet. So, class.new. Yeah, but you, you want to extend a class, right? So like if you have class.new, then it can only be of base type object. But if you want to do any kind of inheritance, then it has to... Class.new pass the parent. So yeah, in, in Smalltalk, it's extend and you pass in the parent. So I'm, I'm considering doing the same thing. But I've kind of enjoyed the perspective of not having if statements and actually having that be part of like a message that's actually sent to the object and also, doing that kind of stuff. Isn't not having inheritance all the rage? Go did it, Rust did it. Yeah, I mean, it. I haven't solved this problem yet. That's that's part of language design. Is It's harder than actually implementing the language most of the time. Right. It's actually figuring out what the proper design for it is and not getting caught up in things that make it super ambiguous and, and hard to work with. Right. Goose is the type of person who I pretty quickly discovered when I started working with him is like, be like, what did you uh, what did you do this weekend? It's like, oh, I, I'm I'm working on my programming language, and it's like, we're doing what? And then like the next week, it would be like, oh, I started writing a book on uh, building a compiler with C, and you're like, <laughs> or like whatever. But like things that seem impossible, like like I think would be fun to talk about making a programming language. Goose actually just starts making the programming language. In all fairness, I fail miserably every single time. It doesn't matter, right? It's still way more. It gets further along than I would. I'd be like, yeah, sure. Um, private methods should have a minus in front of them or whatever. I don't remember what the conversations were. And then you're like, yeah, I did that thing. You at least get far enough to be able to give an informed conference talk about design programming languages. Or was that was yeah. that you? It wasn't no, me. It was, it was you. Yeah. Was yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And it was I fun. just selected the talk. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Which I appreciate. It was, it, was, it was fun to give that talk. We did try and solve, you were mentioning sometimes there are two good talks. We did try and solve that this year on the program by having no good talks. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Except for yours. Yeah. <laughs> only, only three of us gave a talk. <laughs> yes, but, so, so I was the only one at the channel who didn't give a talk. So that's a decent segue to the conversation we were having last night, right? About So I gave a talk and accepted questions at the end. Caleb gave a talk, did not accept questions at the end. Or accepted questions, but not not live, right? Like, come up and ask me questions if you would like to talk about this. And so, and then Goose, you took questions at the end of your talk. So, and you have strong feelings on this. I do have well, strong first feelings. First of all, do you guys? Well, well let, let, articulate your argument, and then we'll poll the poll the audience. No, let's go ahead and poll the audience first. Okay, we'll poll we'll again a at pull, the end we'll do a little and see if anybody's poll. changed their opinions. So, question: Like, do you enjoy the questions at the end of a talk, or do you wish that you could just move on? Show of hands. So who wants? Who enjoys who the wants questions? Uh, one, two, three. Okay, and who doesn't enjoy the questions? A little bit more, and then some iffy iffies. Okay, so a little bit more people don't. A few more people don't enjoy the questions. Okay, now go ahead. So, <laughs> I dislike questions at the end of talks because I think there's actually several reasons, but what it comes down to is a lot of questions aren't questions. Is right. one of the biggest criticisms I've heard of talks accepting questions at the end. Where it's an audience member disagrees with the speaker, especially if they've got something even vaguely controversial to share. And that means that the audience sees this as a platform for sharing their viewpoint. 
I was gonna say, I think training speakers on how to deal with that specific situation kind of mitigates that, right? Like you can just say, if you realize someone has general dissent and you don't think it's worthwhile to actually discuss openly, you could say, oh, that's interesting. Why don't we talk about it yeah. afterwards? I'm very shameless about shutting those down pretty early. But I mean, how do you do that if somebody starts like the talk I gave a couple of years ago in Atlanta, like somebody just started making a statement. And right. It was like, how do I, I do I just interrupt? I, I will be an asshole and interrupt them in <laughs> sentence and say, let's talk about this offline. And you should interrupt because you're the one on stage right another way if they don't have a microphone well you can just keep going and nobody heard anything anyways <laughs> which is another complaint i have is that the speaker then has to repeat all of these questions yeah, and it, it does no speaker venue, is so. always very good at doing that some venues do have microphones, audience microphones yeah. uh keeper beware did that once the other thing is that questions are not always going to be relevant to everyone and i think it's very unlikely that every question during a q a at the end of a talk is relevant to everyone so I always find myself looking at my phone, wishing I was off at lunch. Right. I mean, yeah, I could leave, but I feel like I'm still being rude even during a Q&A period if I walk, get up and walk out, just like I would feel rude if I walked out during a talk. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm coming around to your point of view, especially based on our poll of our audience. So last night I was pretty like, the, the rule I was trying to convey last night was like the more general a, ta a talk is and non-technical, the more perhaps broadly applicable the questions would be. Um, and can really kind of extend the surface area of a talk into more interesting areas. But the technical talks themselves tend to be like, I have this very specific need in my application. How would I apply that, what you just said, to my application? And the fact is the speakers probably considered that question and decided that it wasn't worth the time for the entire audience, and so it was excluded. Yeah. And if it wasn't something that the speaker thought about, then that's something that they can include in later revisions of their talks if, they, if they're going to give it again. Yeah. I, know, I, I do feel like I have had a couple of talks I've given. Like um, the Rails 5 features talk uh, at RailsConf last year had some really good questions and good engagement afterwards that I thought added value. Although just now that you've mentioned it, I am from now on, if I do take questions, going to start saying, and if, and if you don't want to stay for questions, feel free to leave. Nobody will be offended. That creates like a, a thing, though, because then you don't know, like, should I ask my question now or should I wait till these people shuffle out? Like... I think I'm just uh, maybe maybe it is just like come up and talk to me at the end because yeah. people do that anyway. People come up and talk to you at the end anyway and ask questions. And I love having people come up and talk to me. I would much rather right. have that one on one conversation. It makes me feel so much better about the talk that I just gave that somebody is willing to come up and talk to me about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. Yeah. All right. No more questions. Death to questions. <laughs> Should we repoll the audience? I think we have a title. <laughs> Death to questions. OK, I'm on board. I will no longer take questions at the end of talks. Yeah. I did see a couple talks here have had a hashtag, which I think is kind of an interesting way to try and extend the conversation of the talk more broadly. Like if you're interested in this, you can kind of follow this or you can just look at the speaker's mentions perhaps and kind of chime in on stuff there. But yeah, I'm on board with you. So yeah. now that we've talked about not taking questions, you guys want to take some questions? We got All right. Well, hang on. First, first Goose and I have to have a debate. Okay. Oh, snap. So I maintain an authentication library called Clearance. And username and password authentication. We were using clearance on the project that we were discussing, the project, and Goose had a number of problems with it. And I don't know if that's when you wrote. That's that's exactly when I. That's when you wrote Monbon, which is like an auth username and authentication library, and then and delicious ice cream. And like three months later, I became the maintainer of clearance. And then we haven't been friends since. Right. <laughs> it definitely tarnished our relationship <laughs> in, in ways that were unexpected. So 
the approach that clearance takes if people haven't used it is like it's a rails engine you generate some things it gives you views you can override the views if you want by generating the views and it gives you some unit it gives you some feature tests and it gives you some other stuff and i do think it is too far reaching right and so how does monbon differ from that right so all of my problems that you're mentioning that we were having on this project were because the client or specifically the project was like we want users to be able to sign it in this way which is slightly different than what clearance does and the the problem with app engines are that they tie you to this very specific implementation and then when you want to change them you're kind of fighting against it right. and so monbon changes that by instead of being an app engine it's actually a toolkit for developing your own authentication system and i happen to provide you some generators that will kind of dump said authentication system into your project but you have full control over it so it's no longer an app engine you own the views, you own the controllers, you own the models. Everything is in your application and you can manage it however you want. Right. And so sign in uses like this object that you call with credentials and it says like whether or not you're signed in and you can override what happens at that point if you want, right? Or not not override, you can just rewrite what happens at that point. Right. So it, it basically uses service objects for, for handling. I know Sean's going to love that. Um, it basically, favorite term. It basically uses service objects for each of the things that are going to happen in an authentication system. Mm -hmm. So there's sign-in, sign-out, authenticate, and password reset. And you can call those if you want to directly. You can use the built-in functions, which will call those for you, the controller helpers. But you can also override or compose or do whatever you want with those objects. So you have full control over what that stack looks like. Right. Not to interrupt, but I feel like this is important. Sean, do you object to something? <laughs> I do think the real failure of that project was not in clearance. It was in we didn't successfully convince the client that they didn't need to do authentication slightly different from how everybody else does authentication. But I don't think everyone does authentication the same. Like every single client that I've I've worked on is always like, oh, we need this slight variation. We need but this they slight don't. variation. Yeah. Well, but, but there's things like so there were things that actually did we did end up changing clearance to accommodate, right? Like they wanted to be able to suspend users who were habitually posting garbage content. Sure. Right. And they wanted I can't remember what the other stuff they wanted to be. Oh, they wanted to like track the last time a user signed in and like what their IP address was. And that's like a thing that people ask for often. Right. But that's um, just do something in your controller action. Right. So the answer in clearance to the second thing is override the sign in method and call super and then track. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. But like, you know, for this, for the first thing of like suspending users, you actually goose added the sign in guard stack feature to clearance to try and be like a good, like, okay, I'm going to do this. Right. And that's been a useful feature, but it, it's limited. Like, it, you know, if we didn't think of a use case for it, like somebody wanted to use it for doing the thing we were talking about, like tracking IP addresses and things like that. Because they were like, oh, it's a thing that happens and gets run. It's a, it's a thing where I can plug in code that gets run every time a sign-in happens. But it's only really meant to allow or deny sign-in. So you, it's limited in that manner. I mean, why can't it just be a before action on your sessions controller? Because it's not before. It's after. It is before, though. You don't even bother tr checking if the password is right if the user is suspended. That would cause problems because Why? you're at that point, you're no longer going through bcrypt. So you have timing attacks that become possible. I mean, you're leaking like, the information. Yeah, the user is suspended. Yeah, I guess the suspended. I'd have to think about it. There's more. no, I mean, there's no information to gleam from a timing attack because you have leaked all that information. But I've come around on the, you know, a lot of people are like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, leak whether or not uh, a user exists uh, in the past. Or I've come around on like, usually you have three email addresses and you just want to know which of the email addresses you used and really it's not that useful to know whether or not a user exists. Also, as much as like clearance doesn't leak this. So if you go to a password reset and you say like password reset Derek at thoughtbot.com and that email address doesn't exist in our system, you just get a thing that says like 
password reset has been sent, right? Because right. we're trying not to tell you that this user exists on right. the system. However, if you go, and this happens with device as well, when you enable, I think they call it paranoid mo- mode to like prevent that type of thing from happening. If you go to sign up and you input the email address, it tells you <laughs> email user, address is taken. Because yeah. what else would it tell you? It has to tell you that email address is taken. Like... <laughs> One thing we did on Marshall Codex was we did not have separate sign-in, sign-up dialogues. Amazon yeah. does the same thing, and I think more things should do that. So if you're using the same password, which you shouldn't be, then when you sign up with the same email and password, you're just signed in. Right. Exactly. But what if you're using a different password? Then you, then you get an error saying pa- uh, incorrect password. Right. Another thing that you could do, I think, is not tell the user that their email exists in the same band, you could send an email when they sign up to say, hey, you were already signed up. Do you need help recovering your password? Right. Right. Well, that's what a lot of people do is they send the email that says your, this user doesn't exist. Right. That's, but don't tell that in right. the application. Tell that in an email to that user. Right. That's what right. a lot of things do. So kind of cycling back to your point, why don't you do that in a before filter? Part of the reason why that's semi- Before action now. Sure. Before, before action. <laughs> uh, filter one, forever. <laughs> one reason why that's semi-dangerous is because... Um, you might have multiple points in which the user can sign in, so to speak. So if you have an API, you might have a user that signs in via a different way. And if you're not cautious, you might just put it in the sessions controller, but then forget to do it for handling API stuff. I guess you actually almost want to put in an application controller even so that you kick out the user if, they're all, if they have an existing session. Yeah, that might work. The only thing I could come up with for like... We were chatting about this last night, and like I maintain clearance because people use it, and I feel like we should fix the bugs that people have, and people do like it, so we should continue to like make sure it runs on new versions of Rails and things like that, and that's mostly what my maintenance of it has become. But for the most part, I actually do think people should check out Monbon. I don't like Devise, and I just think it does a little too much in a weird kind of obfuscated way, right. and I do think that Monbon's approach is solid, and I would love to try it more. I haven't had that opportunity yet, but like the one thing I could come up with that was a downside to that approach is like sometimes thinking around what the most secure way to handle something is changes. And if you have generated code in your application that did it the old way, right? I can't push a gem update that fixes that for you, which which I can with clearance. It's one nice thing about it. Sometimes it's hard as hell because I have to try and maintain backward compatibility as well, but I can do it. And with generated code, you're at that at the moment you generate the code, you are on your own. I have two points. First, weird and obfuscated is the Rails way. <laughs> <laughs> and so devise makes some sense there. It's what you're already doing. And the second is I love Monbon and Monbon does have some protection against this, but what it comes down to is you're rolling your own authentication. And there are people much smarter than me and people much smarter than anyone at this table who are thinking about authentication, and they're doing it better. They, they can help me with my gem. <laughs> please, pull request please, welcome. Yes, no, not even pull request welcome. Please give me some pull requests. I'd, I'd love to see Or them. issues. Doesn't even or have issues. to be a pull request. Yeah. yeah, so we'll put a link to the show notes on that for, for that. I think people should check it out. I think it's a really interesting approach. I don't think it's quite rolling your own authentication. So it's it's not, because like you have the all the pre-built components. You can replace the components that you want to. And then I provide the generators for specific functionality. So there's the scaffold generator, which just gives you everything. And it's already set up to be as secure as I know how to make it. Um, Disclaimer there. (laughs) That's actually what I'm getting at, though. You are generating that into an application. So if somebody accidentally makes a change, they can make their app less secure. It's not that I I feel like people don't accidentally make changes. 
if they purposely make a change that happens to make it less secure. Don't underestimate right. the power of people to <laughs> accidentally make changes. <laughs> All right. I'm going to keep maintaining clearance. We did try. Remember when we tried to rewrite clearance on top of Monbon for a little bit? Yes. I, I still think we can do that, but I think it was we needed to fix parts of clearance first. Right. Have they been fixed? Um, I think it was a little give and take. We had to fix some things in Monbon too. Come on. Have that's, they, that's have they been fixed? <laughs> in Monbon? Yeah. yeah. Maybe. We don't work together anymore, yeah. so we don't have Fridays to just sit down and like. And now Goose works in Japan, so like, when are we gonna when are we gonna work on that? Isn't it always Time Friday zones. in Japan? Uh, I think that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, we have something called Premium Friday, though. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, for those of you who don't live in Japan, Premium Friday is this initiative to get people out of work on the last Friday of every month, to, like get out early. And it's really interesting because the government agency which said, hey, you guys should be doing Premium Friday. I was like, yeah, we're going to investigate whether or not we actually want to implement Premium Friday in our own uh, practices. And uh, they told companies people should take their own vacation time. So if you want to have a Premium Friday where you get off early on the last Friday of the month, you have to actually use vacation time. So nobody really likes it. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Huh. Should we do some questions? Questions. questions. Should we do any questions? <laughs> See, here we go. Now we're going to do questions after we said you shouldn't take questions. <laughs> Anybody? We're going to sit here and stare awkwardly at you until somebody asks us a question. This is another problem with taking questions. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's one of my biggest fears of like having a talk. I'm like, any questions? And then I sit there like, okay, I must have given a bad talk because no one, no one is asking me any questions. Yeah. So we must be doing a bad job because no one's asking us any Or we questions. just answered all of them. Everybody's going to come up and ask us questions once we're done. <laughs> <laughs> What's been your favorite talk so far? So, I mean, my favorite talk has still been your talk. Oh, stop. No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, in all fairness, it was really, really well put together. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I enjoyed the talk's content, but I just enjoyed the way you presented the talk's content. Like, Thank you. It was solid. Pun intended. <laughs> Thank you. Caleb? Naturally, my favorite talk is the entire machine learning track. <laughs> you can't pick amongst your children? <laughs> I can't have favorites. Caleb was the conductor. Curator, the conductor. Curator. Can we can we stick with the conductor for the machine <laughs> learning track? Yeah. And I mostly did that because I didn't know anything about machine learning, but it seemed interesting. So I wanted you know four to six other people to learn a lot about machine learning and teach me. Did you pick that like, hey, let's have a, con a machine learning track, or was it like we have a machine learning track, Caleb? You, we want you to be on the program. Would you like to do the machine learning track? So the cool thing about the program committee is that one of the responsibilities, and probably the chief responsibility, is to pick your own track. So I got to decide. There should be a machine learning track because that's something I'm interested in. That's something that I think you Rubyists can get something out of. Cool. Sean, you were on the program committee before. How was your experience? It was good. I, I, I felt bad towards the end because I wasn't able to comment on as many of the proposals as I would like because, like, baby came unexpectedly. I, if I'd known Ruby was going to come six weeks early, I would not have accepted because I, I would have known I wouldn't have had the time to commit to it that I should have, but... I enjoyed it, and I was ecstatic with how with how well my track turned out. So, yeah, ten out of ten would re would review again. So you would say you have a good track record. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Very well played. I lost my sunglasses at the conference. If you find them, please bring them to me. I don't think this is going out until after. What the do they look like? Over. Sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole bunch at the Bug Snag booth. Grab those. I'll have to go over there. <laughs> All right, we got, got one. Question. <laughs> when is Rails 5.1 coming out? When <laughs> the actual answer is when David can find Raphael. Today. Hopefully. Yeah, th today. Like literally, they, we were just out there and they were talking about has anybody seen Raphael? We should we should ship now. So 
Yeah. It probably happened while we were recording, actually, would be my guess. We've trapped you in here so you couldn't be part of that process. <laughs> yeah. It is going to be Friday tomorrow. Please don't upgrade your Rails apps it's, on Friday. It's Thursday tomorrow. Yeah, go ahead and upgrade your Rails app. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, go for it. Don't deploy on Friday. I will say this. So, you know, I, I am for various reasons incredibly adamant about my need to do open source full time. And the biggest one is just issue triage is a huge job and somebody needs to do it. And I take the majority of that responsibility. And if I don't do it full time, it eats my entire life. This guy, Alex, had a screen. I have not looked at GitHub since my baby was born, or barely looked at GitHub. He had a screenshot with the, which included the number of open issues and pull requests on the Rails repository. Like whenever you took that, which I'm assuming was fa- fairly recently, and I like died a little inside because the open pull request count was almost 700, and my my personal benchmark is to keep that below 500, which is still obscenely high, but just it's hard to even just keep it even. And it's like, oh god, this is gonna take me a year to get it back down. <laughs> So thank you for that. <laughs> it's okay. Your talk was still my favorite talk at the conference so far. So, awesome. I do have a question. Yeah. How many hours do you think you put into writing your talks? The question is, how many hours <laughs> did we put into writing our talks? Do we want to start down the line? Uh, I need time to think about trying to tally it. I can't imagine that I did less than 100 hours. I'd guess more like 150. Wow. That's that's way more than I think I put into mine. I would say I'm somewhere around like 30 hours. And that doesn't include pre-prep. Like I had to learn all of these things too. And that's not stuff that I can count in those 120 hours or 150 hours. Counting from the time that like I knew the talk was accepted. I would probably say somewhere between 80 and 100 hours. Somewhere around there. Um, I think that's a good benchmark for putting together uh Sorry, <laughs> quality talk is 70 hours, I Low think, blow. is the absolute minimum that you can put in. Even for a five-minute lightning talk, I'm probably putting in several hours of work. Right? Mine, mine range is quite a bit. I, I I think the low end was probably the Rails 5 features last year, which was somewhere around 50 hours. And then the high end was probably be actually the Attributes API talk, which was upwards of two or 300 hours just because I rewrote it and, uh, and had, then had to re-rehearse it so many times. Right, yeah, and rehearsal for me is a large part of it. Like every time I rehearse it, that's a half an hour. Right. So, you know, it adds up pretty quickly. And some, like, leading, I had rewritten the talk in the last week before the conference. So, like, I would do it like three or four times a night. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, rehearsal eats a lot of that time. And then just, and it's hard to classify, like, how, like, sometimes it was like 20 minutes while I was on the train. I was like, oh, I just have a really good idea for this. And so, right. like, it's, you know, that's why I say it's kind of a range. And we can't forget that it's really easy to get distracted while prepping for a talk. Right. So sometimes some of that time is like, hmm. I really need to pay that bill. (laughs) Making cookies because I figured out that (laughs) algorithms and recipes are the same thing. Keynote's kind of delicious for for that reason, though, because you you have to spend twice as much time rehearsing it. (laughs) See, my my inbox was empty. (laughs) Like two days before the conference, I had no no email, and I use my inbox as like I have to I have to reply to these people, and there's always like twenty or thirty emails in there. It was empty. See, I I think I (laughs) I had a slight advantage because I actually run Tokyo Rails Meetup, and we didn't have speakers for the last meeting. So I was like, I better whip together a talk. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm writing this talk for RailsConf. Let me just finish it and then give it. And mm-hmm. so I was able to finish the talk, essentially, and then give the full talk in front of an entire audience. And it was recorded. So when I was going back and trying to edit it, I could just watch myself and be like, oh, I liked this. I didn't like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if you don't record yourself practicing, you should. 
because yeah. you're your biggest critic and you can actually like find those little points that you don't like. And when and by practice, like you shouldn't just like kind of like mumble your way through or be like, oh, I'll fix that. Oh, that was I stumbled there. I'll fix that. Like, don't uh, you can't back up. You can't unless right. you unless you intend to back up like that in the actual talk, like real practice. Is I have what's a, important. maybe a slightly different process. Uh, one of my benchmarks for how done a talk is, is when I can actually get through an entire practice without stopping. Because the first several times I'm stopping, I'm editing notes, I'm fixing problems with flow, and there's no better way to find that sort of thing than by saying it out loud to your dog or mm. in the bathroom, whatever. Right. I do think it is, if if at all possible, it's a, it's a good idea to try and give the talk as many times as you can to audiences beforehand. Usually that means a local meetup or to a group of coworkers at lunch or something like that. Because I, I, at least for me, my, my talk is a little different every time I give it because I feed a lot off of the audience and kind of change things up depending on, on kind of the, the reads that I get. And so practicing giving it in front of an audience for me is really important because that helps me, especially because I tell some bad jokes. <laughs> isn't, isn't that entirely what talks are these bad days? Jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I come from the Aaron Patterson school of, uh, of uh, talk writing. <laughs> Another reason to give a talk a bunch of times is that you put 150 hours into the talk. Right. Right. And so yeah. the more conferences you can get out of a single talk, the better. Well, yeah, I mean, also giving at multiple conferences. But I'm even just thinking in terms of prep for a single conference. like Definitely. And meetups, meetups are a are great good. way to do that because it gives you a deadline that's before the conference, probably much before the conference. If I can get a, a month earlier deadline, then I've got the talk done. And even if that means that I'm going to spend a lot more time rewriting it, I've at least got a bunch of feedback from you know 30 to 50 people yeah which I plus think meetup meetup organizers are usually pretty starved for speakers i, I know some there are a few meetups that are just like they have a ton of speakers but for the majority of meetups are like we need more speakers so you're also doing your local meetup group of service yeah i would say i think that's really great advice and i've never done it <laughs> like often what happens to me is i get so attached to the talk that the idea of giving it at a meetup at where feedback might not be good would just be crushing to me. You get you gave your last talk like four times before RailsConf. No, zero times. No, you told me you gave it at uh, the Boston uh, Ruby meetup. I gave meetup. it after RailsConf oh, at the Boston Ruby meetup. I, I had never given a talk anywhere prior to giving that talk. Huh. You were actually paid to give that talk at a company. Yes. Yep. Mailchimp had me down to give it at a company, which is interesting because it's like, well, it's free on the internet, you know. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> it must be those questions that they got to ask. Yeah, it must be. How long did you spend on your talk? You asked. How long did you spend on yours? You think? 150. Yeah. 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 150 or more. <laughs> okay. Cool. I feel really bad. I should have put way more hours. We have another question. Okay. To piggyback off that question, um, I've never given a conference talk, and I feel like. I'm kind of in the process of wanting to do that. And so I'm starting to kind of think about what I would want to give a talk about. And I was curious, how did you go about thinking about your talk topic and how far along did you get in the thought process when you actually applied and submitted the proposal versus like once you actually got in, do you feel like that the idea of the talk kind of morphed over time? So pro tip, if you want to actually get accepted to a conference, submit like four or five proposals. <laughs> like it, that you, you lose nothing if, 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 if a talk doesn't work out, you lose nothing by submitting the proposal. The organizers aren't going to be like, ha ha ha, this talk, this talk would be so bad. Ha ha, this person is dumb. You, you, you know what I mean? And most people submit multiple proposals to the same conference. And that's, that's yeah, the shotgun approach helps, helps acceptance rates quite a bit. Inspiration can come from a lot of places. Sometimes it's somebody tweets something that I think... I could probably run with 
uh, I might have read a book, I might have learned something on a project. A lot of my talks start out as blog posts that I write, and I gauge interest in the talk based on how popular that blog post is. Definitely. For me, for me, it's like it comes from, I think, maybe slight advantage of doing some consulting work because it's like, how many times have I had to coach a team along on one good, good, good code review processes? And is there a talk that does this already? And I don't think there is. Like, maybe I should do that. Or like this last one was like, I've really had to talk about controllers and active record models like in their relationship quite a lot and why it's problematic. So maybe like maybe there's something should come out of that. So like just ask yourself, like, what do you wish earlier you knew? Which is the same thing you would ask yourself about a blog post, right? Like, what do I wish I knew? I mean, what do I wish existed before I had to go and figure this out myself? And one, sorry, one quick thing is I wouldn't even worry if someone else has already given the talk because more right. often than not, not everybody's watched every single talk. And even if there's a really great one out there, you can, of course, just say at the end of your talk, like, hey, there's this really great talk that inspired me. If you're interested, you should watch that one as well. Right. I would also even say, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you wish you knew. Like the point of a talk is first and foremost to be entertaining and being educational is sort of secondary because a bored audience is never going to learn anything. I always tell people to target what they're passionate about, because if you really care about the subject, you're going to give a better talk. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as like, do I have it written? I don't write it before it gets accepted because right. it takes so much time to write it. And I don't want to waste It takes two that hours to write an abstract. Well, it takes five minutes to write an abstract. <laughs> it takes it takes a lot. You should put more time than five minutes into an abstract. Well, the, you know, he said two <laughs> you, hours you, to write it well. Oh, okay. Five All minutes right. to write. You, one. you could okay. submit something after five minutes. It won't probably get accepted, but maybe. Right. And that's so much less time than it takes to build a talk. And it also means that you can submit talks about things that you don't know enough about to actually present on right then, and then you can use the talk as an excuse to learn about it. I have written uh, submitted proposals for features that like I hadn't even started working on yet. As my motivation, well, I guess I better ship this feature before uh, before the talk. It, it is kind of unfortunate. Like I don't know that there's a way to fix it, but just due to the nature of, of how talk selection goes, we end up selecting for um, people who are good at writing talk proposals and not necessarily the people who are going to present good talks because we don't review the talk, right? We review the proposal and the talk and the proposal can often be very different. Yeah. And yeah, that that was the other part of the question is like, how does it like after it gets accepted, it takes on a life of its own and it may not end up being at all. And I've seen cases where like, like Ben <laughs> was bet What did I, Ben do? I think Ben has like given proposals, got accepted and just wrote a different talk and gave it. I, I, I have actually <laughs> I did that once because I wrote the talk and the talk was absolute garbage. <laughs> Don't tell any of the conference organizers, but nobody's ever gotten pulled off stage for giving a different talk. Submitted. <laughs> it would have been amazing to like come in and say, uh, we're not actually talking about machine learning today. I'm going to talk about this other thing. <laughs> But like, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be educational. I mean, this was a keynote, so it was a little, it was a little bit more wiggle room. But just I, when I was in Russia last year, I mean, it was going to be the last talk before my daughter was born, and spaceships are like my only normal hobby, and I really wanted to talk about spaceships on stage. So I wrote this this talk about uh, the Russian space program and how, for longevity, the Ruby and Rails community can learn from the longevity of the R seven family of rockets. Except we started late, and rather than cutting into the break, they cut me off 10 minutes early. And so the 10 minutes at the end that really tied everything into software was just gone. So it was just a talk about spaceships and nothing else. <laughs> but people actually seemed to really enjoy it, even though it was in no way relevant to anything they were doing in their jobs. Didn't, didn't you do a Rails talk once about trains? My very first talk, I was obviously an ex inexperienced speaker, and... The conference organizers sort of changed the proposal on me. 
So I had one talk I wanted to give. I don't even remember what it was. And they said, you know, we'd really have rather have a history of rails. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote a talk on sort of the history of rails as I understood it at the time and talked about things like the different patterns that make up rails, like the active record pattern and that sort of thing. And it was a 15 minute talk <laughs> for a 45 minute slot. And so I wrote a history of transportation up to railroads. <laughs> and that was the 20 minute introduction to my 15 minute talk on the history of rails. So, and I tied that in by saying, hey, look, all of these things were building on principles. They weren't reinventing things. And so the talk sort of morphed into like a don't reinvent the wheel, use these design patterns. Railroads are cool. <laughs> so, so actually, I, I have a question for you. You've been a conference organizer and you've... Please see me offline. And, you've, and you've, <laughs> you've curated talks. And often there are slots that are 45 minutes long or whatever. How would you feel if someone came in and gave a 15-minute talk for that 45-minute slot? But it was a good 15-minute talk. It's unprofessional. It, it might be unprofessional, but you know what? If it were a good talk, I don't think I would mind too much. I would like some heads up mm. if you're going to give a 15-minute talk. Because it means that I can give people a longer break. It means I can move some stuff around. Unless you're a conference like RailsConf where sort of everything, there's so many tracks that you wouldn't be able to fix this anyways. But those few minutes, like Keep Ruby Weird runs over time and we have to find some time on the fly during the schedule. So lunches get shortened or breaks get longer or your talk gets moved up before the other person's talk because their slides weren't working and then your slides weren't working. Things go wrong. And that's fine. It's the conference organizer's job to roll with that and keep the whole show going. And hopefully attendees don't actually notice, although a 15-minute talk might be obvious. <laughs> that's fair. I, I think when I write talks, if it's 45 minutes, I aim for about 30 minutes or 35 minutes. I usually want like 10 minutes left over at the end because I typically take questions. <laughs> I don't think... <laughs> questions are a great crutch for when you couldn't quite fill the whole time slot. Questions are for the week. I think that I've never given a talk that's longer than 30 minutes, regardless of the length of the slot. And I think that 30 minutes is a great length for the slots. And I yeah. think that 20 minutes is a better length for the slots. So can we make them 20 minutes? A lot Some of conferences, conferences are do. doing 20 yeah. minutes or 15-minute yeah. talks as the longest slots. I think 25 is coming up as a big number, which is a good number as well. And if you don't use the whole time, then it could either be questions or it can either be bathroom break. Uh, yeah, like I think if you get – if like the talk slots here are 40 minutes. If you get to 30 minutes – You've done your job. No, I think that's fine. It's it's if you if you're more than ten minutes short, I think is when that starts to just be granted. I, granted, I do think forty minutes is too long. Keep Ruby weird slots. I think you'd have to ask Terrence Lee, who I forced to do the schedule every time. I believe they're thirty five minutes long, and the keynotes only get ten more minutes at forty five minutes. So that's the normal length of most talks. And I think that the hour to an hour and a half that keynotes get at bigger conferences like this, you know. Sometimes they're fine, but I think that's still a very long time to be sitting in one place. Yeah. Especially, like, I think I think DHH's keynote, if it was just the first third of it, would have been a really good keynote. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. This may be controversial, but currently <laughs> we're talking about questions and whatnot, and it's very, very clear how Caleb feels about questions. <laughs> um, during that whole conversation, all I could think about was, I love questions at the end of the talks, and uh, everyone else is like, no, questions bad! Right. I'm like... Okay, why? I, all I can think about the positive, so I'm just curious. Like, Derek, you, you changed your mind halfway through after you heard it, what everyone else saw. Mm -hmm. I was curious, like, what was your opinion about questions, you know, before he said what he said? Or also, secondly, your question would be, like, 
if you play devil's advocate and think about positive things, you know, just to play pros and cons of this, positive. what would be the positive thing? Yeah, pos- the question was a statement. I like questions. <laughs> I think the code review talk I gave in Atlanta a few years ago had seven or eight questions afterwards, and I thought most of them were pretty general purpose and common things that people would run into. Yeah, There were one or two that I think were a little specific. But I think that in general, those questions added, I felt like they added to the talk. And I've actually gotten feedback from people who've watched the talk on YouTube to say like they also they they got value out of the questions as well. I think in the talk I just most recently gave, the questions tended to be a little bit more specific or up and down maybe. And not that they were bad questions, but just that Some they Some of them were bad questions. <laughs> was it my question? Was my question a bad question? <laughs> Your question I told you was like material that actually did, like I was like, oh, I should touch on this in the talk and I just didn't get into it. Like the idea that a, a, a collection of resources can be its own resource. But yeah, I think there are positives to it, but I do think that there's a potential negative and there's almost no negative to not having. Nine out of ten questions are not going to be good in that they're useful to everyone or they're actually a valuable question or they're not just a statement. You didn't just make a statement. I'm making a joke about that. But (laughs) that tenth question is potentially very valuable, and I have been happy to overhear questions in talks before. So playing devil's advocate, sometimes they're okay, but 90% of everything is shit. I, I do think, if nothing else, we need to do a better job of making sure newer speakers know you don't have to take questions. Well, I think I think they should know that they don't have to take questions, but if they want to take questions... And be le- prepared for the bad ones. L- learning how to, like, box them. Yeah. And, Where do we and, find that? Or how can we learn that as new speakers? So, so, actually, I think one of the things that I've been missing at conferences is a talk about how to give talks. Like, there's two of them that I like. One that talks about specifically how do you handle questions or things like that. Sarah May has a blog post on this, by the way. Well, we just talked about making blog posts into conference talks, so <laughs> I wonder if actually taking other people's blog posts and turning them to <laughs> conference talks would be a thing. Do you think as a conference organizer, you could just tell a speaker that they're giving a talk based on a blog post? Just be like, okay, you're on the schedule. You need to be here. Here's the talk you're <laughs> Here's giving. Here's the blog Please post. Please work on yes. it. Um, maybe. And I also would like one on how to actually use Keynote uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people in our community who know how to use it exceptionally well, and I'd love to see a talk on that if anyone wants to make that talk please, please go for it death to keynote markdown slides forever <laughs> i mean i really don't care like i just want to know the techniques for putting together a good presentation sure yeah. sparkle transitions <laughs> <laughs> flames lots of flames two words and this is serious magic move yeah yeah you taught me about magic move this conference deck and set magic move for those who don't know is a keynote transition that well, magically moves elements around <laughs> between slides. So you can have a picture moving, which is sort of boring, but you could also have, if you've got two slides that are just walls of text, then you can have all of the little characters move around and become the next slide. And that's sort of cool and gimmicky, but we were looking at a code example where you were going to translate a piece of code from Ruby into Haskell. And when I used magic move instead of sort of the manual transitions that you've been using, I think it turned out to be pretty cool. Yeah, I would agree, especially when you're trying to represent a transformation in the first place. Being able to use something that kind of encapsulates that and, and visually represents it is really, really powerful. Yeah, code is really is notoriously difficult to do yeah. in conference talks. Well, it's easy to do and hard to do well. Right. Sorry. Hard to do well. And so that's why, like, when I did it, I was mostly just kind of like, don't read this. Look at the shape of it because it's hard to do it in a manner that you expect people to read it. So anything else? Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, right. for coming to our live bike shed as we bike shedded for you. <laughs> <laughs>
Enjoy Thanks the rest clap. of the conference. Yeah. Thanks, Please everyone. Please clap is how you said it. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 119. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.